As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, already a know. podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that chases the rainbow of history every day of the week. I'm Gabe Lussier, and on this St. Patrick's Day, we're tipping our hat to a lesser-known Disney classic that feels right at home with the holiday. The day was March 17, 1958. Production began on the live-action Disney film Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Walt Disney had always wanted to make a movie about Ireland and its folklore, leprechauns in particular. He began developing one as early as 1945, and even traveled to Ireland with a team of artists to gather background material. Years later, while promoting Darby O'Gill, Walt explained his fascination, saying, quote, Being half Irish myself, I learned about the leprechauns of Ireland while I was still a small boy on our farm at Marceline, Missouri. I began to believe in leprechauns then, because some of my relatives had pretty convincing stories to tell about the magic powers of these little people and the tricks they could play when angry. Looking back, Walt's sudden claim to Irish heritage seems a bit opportunistic, coming up only during the publicity tour for his very Irish film. However, his declaration was rooted in truth, as his great-grandfather, Arundel Elias Disney, had immigrated to the U.S. from Kilkenny, Ireland in 1823. That said, Disney didn't make a movie about leprechauns solely to honor his family history. He also recognized there was a built-in audience for such a film, namely Irish Americans. The intention to target that demographic was made clear in a 1959 internal document from Disney's publicity department. When describing the plans for the film's release, it says, quote, Unlike previous campaigns, Darby O'Gill will have a ready-made market potential of 20 million Irish Americans. Special attention will be paid to these people with shamrocks in their eyes, 
their numbers alone could carry the picture to big box office earnings. By 1948, Walt had decided to base his film on the Darby O'Gill stories of Irish children's author Hermione Templeton Cavanaugh. Initially, he planned to make a fully animated adaptation, but by the end of the film's decade-long development process, it had morphed into an all-live-action affair. The change was largely inspired by the studio's recent success with live-action family films, such as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Johnny Tremaine, and Old Yeller. With the help of some clever special effects, Disney would be able to depict all the magic of Irish legends in live action. And most importantly, he'd be able to do it on a faster schedule and for much less money than if he'd gone the animated route. Disney had the perfect director for the job, too. British-born filmmaker Robert Stevenson, the man behind the highly acclaimed and highly traumatic Old Yeller. Stevenson would go on to make many more Disney classics, including 1961's The Absent-Minded Professor and 1964's Mary Poppins. But Darby O'Gill was a more personal film for Stevenson. He was of Irish descent on his mother's side and was well-versed in leprechaun lore. In fact, Stevenson said that his grandmother would routinely leave out a tiny jug of milk for any little people who happened to pass by. She also kept a bucket of water nearby just in case any of the tiny pranksters tried to play a trick on her. Because, of course, as Stevenson explained, leprechauns hate water, even for drinking. With the film's medium decided, the script locked, and the director in place, Darby O'Gill and the Little People officially went into production on St. Patrick's Day 1958. For the uninitiated, the movie tells the story of Darby O'Gill, the elderly caretaker of a grand estate owned by the often absent Lord Fitzpatrick. A mischievous charmer with the gift of gab, Darby often neglects his duties in favor of telling tall tales about little people down at the local pub. However, he's forced to take his job more seriously when a young man named Michael McBride is sent to replace him. He keeps that development a secret from his fiery daughter Katie, but stumbles upon a possible solution when he manages to capture Brian Connors, the real-life King of the Leprechauns. The King agrees to grant Darby three wishes in exchange for his release, but the deal is complicated by the bickering duo's repeated attempts to outwit each other. Will Darby keep his job? Will King Brian keep his promise? Will Katie and Michael fall in love? It's a Disney movie, so you can probably guess, but the path to those resolutions is so delightful and endearing that it's absolutely worth the trip, predictable or not. Walt Disney originally wanted Barry Fitzgerald for the title role of Darby. However, that venerable Irish star of the stage and screen was semi-retired by the late 1950s and ultimately declined the offer. So instead, Walt turned to another veteran Irish actor, Albert Sharp. He, too, was retired by the time Darby O'Gill went into production, but he was such a fan of the character and of Walt Disney that he agreed to come out of retirement just to play the role. It's a good thing he did, too, because Sharp's portrayal, equal parts warm and wily, is really the soul of the movie. No matter how zany the story gets, Sharp's Darby keeps the whole thing grounded, even when he's interacting with magical, knee-high characters. Despite being fairly accurate in its depictions of Irish myths and rural village life, Darby O'Gill was shot entirely in California. Walt had briefly considered filming in Ireland, but decided against it for budgetary reasons. 
In the end, most of the exterior scenes were filmed at various movie ranches throughout the Hollywood area, while the fictional village of Rath Cullen was built on a soundstage on Disney's studio backlot in Burbank. The finished movie does include some second unit footage shot in Ireland, which was later combined with matte paintings by legendary artist Peter Ellenshaw to help sell the illusion of 19th century Ireland. At one point in the film's development, the 21-inch high leprechauns were going to be animated characters, which would allow them to exist within the same frame as the live-action sets and actors. The final production took a different approach, though, with the leprechauns being portrayed by real human actors as well. The extreme height difference between the characters was achieved through the use of forced perspective, a technique that alters the viewer's perception of scale, making objects within a shot appear larger, smaller, farther, or closer than they truly are. Let's use the movie's most impressive sequence as an example. It takes place in King Brian's throne room, deep within the leprechaun's secret cavern. There, Darby, an average-sized human, manically plays his fiddle, while dozens of leprechauns dance and cavort and ride tiny horses all around him. Peter Ellenshaw and his special effects team were able to seamlessly mix Darby and the leprechauns by blending together two different shots, one in which Albert Sharp was positioned on a regular-sized set closer to the camera, and one in which the Leprechaun players performed on an oversized set with massive props four times further away from the camera. Because 2D cameras don't distinguish the true distance between objects, the actors appear to be right next to each other when the shots are overlaid. Of course, that illusion required a lot of mathematical precision to determine just the right perspective lines. Thankfully, that turned out to be a piece of cake for the film's director. According to Ellenshaw, quote, Being a mathematician and an extremely intelligent man who used to read books on quantum theories and such, it was quite simple for Bob to work out the differences in perspective that we were playing with. Of course, there's more to Darby O'Gill than special effects and comedy. It's got a fair bit of romance as well. The couple at its center is Darby's daughter, Katie O'Gill, and the replacement caretaker, Michael McBride. After an extensive casting tour of Ireland and the UK, Walt Disney personally selected Janet Monroe and Sean Connery for the roles. It was the American film debut for both young actors, and it was a somewhat difficult one for Connery, as it called for the Scottish actor to sing a duet with his co-star. It was later reported that Robert Stevenson considered dubbing another singer over Connery's voice, but he ultimately decided against it. I think he made the right choice, and that Monroe's voice more than makes up for Connery's shortcomings as a singer. But hey, you can decide for yourself. Here's a clip from Pretty Irish Girl. Oh, she's my dear, my darling one, her eyes so sparkling full of fun. No other, no other can match the likes of her. Oh, he is my dear, my darling one, his eyes so sparkling full of fun. No other, no other can match the likes of him. That recording was pretty much the start and end of Sean Connery's singing career, but his performance in Darby O'Gill actually helped his acting career quite a bit. According to Connery, James Bond producer Albert Broccoli watched all kinds of films while searching for the right actor to play the secret agent. 
Darby O'Gill and the Little People turned out to be one of them, and when Connery came on screen, Broccoli knew he had found his bond. Jimmy O'D, aka King Brian, was another actor who had hoped to use Darby as a springboard to other Hollywood projects. He had certainly earned the exposure after spending five months shooting tedious forced perspective scenes in a foreign country. Unfortunately, the beloved Irish actor was denied his chance at international stardom due to the film's rather unusual publicity campaign. Walt Disney thought it would be fun to pretend that the leprechauns in his movie were the real deal. He published all kinds of material detailing the little people's involvement in the filmmaking, including doctored photos of the leprechauns attending the movie's world premiere in Dublin. If that weren't enough, Walt even produced an episode of his anthology TV show, in which he traveled to Ireland to meet both Darby O'Gill and King Brian. Titled I Captured the King of the Leprechauns, the behind-the-scenes special claimed to show how Walt convinced the real-life little people to fly to Hollywood and appear in his movie. Here's a clip. Good evening, Your Honor. I brought Mr. Disney to see you, sir. Disney? I've heard of the Dailies, the Duffies, the Donovans, the Devlins, the Darties, but Disney, no. I don't know any Disney, so good night, sir. Disney's fantasy was maintained even in the film's opening credits, where an on-screen notice said, quote, My thanks to King Brian of Nakhnashiga and his leprechauns, whose gracious cooperation made this picture possible. Signed, Walt Disney. Unfortunately, Disney carried things a bit too far by leaving Jimmy O'Dee's name off the film entirely. On screen, King Brian is credited as having played himself, a concession to the idea that there were real leprechauns in the movie. Darby O'Gill and the Little People began production on St. Patrick's Day, but it was actually released in the middle of summer. The movie's world premiere took place in Dublin, Ireland on June 24, 1959, and two days later, it held its American premiere at Grauman's Chinese Theatre in Hollywood. Reviews for the film were mostly positive, though it was only a modest success at the box office. Those 20 million people with shamrocks in their eyes never materialized. Plenty of research went into the making of Darby O'Gill, and for the most part, Ireland and its traditions and legends are portrayed with respect and affection. That said, the movie does include its share of ugly Irish stereotypes, many of which are personified by the film's antagonist, a drunken, violent bully named Pony Sugru. At the time of its release, though, the public's main complaint, at least in the U.S., was that they couldn't understand the characters' Irish accents. In response, Disney re-released the film in 1964, with many of the actors' voices dubbed over, including those of Albert Sharp and Jimmy O'Dee. I bring this up because that dubbed version is the one that's most accessible today, readily available for streaming on Disney+. The service includes a content warning for the Irish stereotypes, but there's no mention of the dubbing, which many might find even more offensive. If that sounds like you, then I recommend tracking down a copy of the movie on DVD or Blu-ray, where the original 1959 soundtrack is still intact, Irish brogue and all. I'm Gabe Blusier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have a second and you're so inclined, consider keeping up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Show. 
You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or you can get in touch directly by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again soon for another day in history class. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steel, is every Thursday a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.